My name is Joe Hawkins, and this is the History of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in 50 Objects Podcast. Hello and welcome back to another episode of History of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in 50 Objects Podcast. Happy 2019! It's strange to think that I'm sneaking up on one year of doing this podcast. Now, quick disclaimer, today's episode is a long one, and I'm going to be a bit more concerned with the historical story than the actual object itself, so just forewarning you. Now, before we start, are you a fan of Sherlock Holmes? I ask because there is a new movie out starring Will Ferrell. It feels like there's a new show or movie coming out about Sherlock Holmes every year or so. So I decided to look it up. And sure enough, the character of Sherlock Holmes holds the Guinness Book of World Records listing him as the most portrayed movie character in history. The popularity of Sherlock Holmes is so high that many people around the globe think that he was a literal person that solved crimes in the late 18th century. There are books, short stories, movies, plays, TV series, comic books, and many other forms of entertainment where his stories are played out. When Arthur Conan Doyle first thought up Sherlock Holmes in the late 1870s, he based the character on a friend that was a surgeon working at the Royal Infirmary. Conan Doyle was amazed at his friend's ability to draw such broad conclusions from minute observations. So inspired as he was, he began working on a story. The very first Sherlock Holmes story that he wrote was called a study in Scarlet, and in it, Conan Doyle needed a dastardly villain to play out the role of bad guys. Though Conan Doyle had never been to America, the rumors about Mormons had reached him. He'd heard that Brigham Young ran the Salt Lake Valley as a theocracy and that he forced young women into polygamous marriages. It sounded so evil that Conan Doyle had found his villain. Though A Study in Scarlet would never be a huge success, it did launch the fame of Sherlock Holmes and played a role in the spreading of misinformation about Mormons. These misunderstandings about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints weren't just happening in London, though. In Washington, D.C., one-third of the military in 1857, believing these types of rumors are organizing to march on Utah, displace Brigham Young, and put down a perceived rebellion. In the last episode, we discussed the years 1856 and 57. Today, we'll piggyback right off those years and roll on through 1857 to 1861. This was a tense and nerve-wracking time in the United States. I've mentioned this a couple of times in previous episodes, but the U.S. was on the eve of civil war. State rights and slavery in particular were the themes of the day. To no one was this more stressful, however, than James Buchanan. On March 4th of 1857, James Buchanan would be sworn in as the 15th President of the United States. Buchanan's presidency would be marred by the question of slavery and a compromise stance that would neither alleviate nor eradicate the intractable question from the American society. To add to these complications, just days after his inauguration, the U.S. Supreme Court would rule 6-3 to three that a slave did not become free when transported into a free state. 
To further muddy up this debate, they ruled that slavery could not be banned by the U.S. Congress in a territory and that African Americans were not eligible to be awarded citizenship. The slavery arguments threw Kansas into a phase that's come to be known as Bleeding Kansas because slavery proponents were battling anti-slavery groups and killing homesteaders in the process. These hostilities will only get hotter. Months after this, in Harper's Ferry, West Virginia, 21 abolitionists under the direction of John Brown will take control of the U.S. Armory there. Their intention was to cause an uprising among the slaves in the surrounding territories. Now, this would ultimately fail when John Brown is outflanked by arguably the best colonel in the military, Colonel Robert E. Lee. He would kill most of the abolitionists and capture John Brown, who would later be hanged. Kind of an interesting note, considering Robert E. Lee will lead the Confederate Army against the Union in their attempt to hold state rights and keep slavery in the South. So with all of this going on, and the cannons of West Point being faced toward our own Americans, you'd think President Buchanan would be solely focused on resolving these issues. But Buchanan felt there were easier hurdles to jump. The up-and-coming Republican Party was sweeping the northern states. It was doing so well that the young party's biggest star, Abraham Lincoln, will succeed James Buchanan, becoming the first-ever Republican president of the United States following Buchanan's first and only term. The Republican Party fought what it considered to be the twin relics of barbarism, slavery and polygamy. President Buchanan and the Democrats couldn't fully denounce slavery as it was so supported in the southern states. They could, however, denounce polygamy as vehemently as the Republicans were doing. So Brigham Young and the Mormons fell into the crosshairs of the President of the United States. Buchanan even vowed during his presidential campaign that if elected, he would replace Brigham Young as governor of the Utah Territory. So with all of this going on, how could the church survive an invasion of the military into Utah? Today's object is Camp Floyd's flagpole. So, what is Camp Floyd's flagpole and how did it come about? Let's provide some context. On July 10th of 1857, Brigham Young was leading a celebration with the Utah members of the church in Big Cottonwood Canyon. The church was celebrating the first 10 years in the Salt Lake Basin. Though they battled mobs, militias, martyrdom, exile, frozen desert plains, droughts, and grasshoppers, here they were. They'd overcome it all and felt they were building the kingdom of God. In the 10 years they'd been in the valley, the church had seen over 20,000 converts, and now they had just under 60,000 members. They had settled over 100 colonies across the West and had just finished a massive spiritual reformation. This was a day of celebrating everything they'd accomplished. But as the festivities carried through the day, Brigham Young suddenly saw Porter Rockwell and Abraham Smoot approaching him quickly through the crowd. Something was wrong. Just days earlier, the church had learned that the federal government had mysteriously canceled the federal mail contract with the Utah Territory. Porter and Abraham had ridden to Independence, Missouri to collect the mail and figure out what had happened. Upon arriving in Independence, the men were surprised to find no answer was available to them as to why the mail contract was canceled. To add to their confusion, the men witnessed several large supply trains heading west towards Utah. 
As everything heading west generally passed through Utah, this came as a surprise. Upon inquiry, they discovered to their dismay that those supply chains were to support the army. The army was headed to Utah to put down the perceived Mormon rebellion. What was the church to think of this perceived invasion? Many members of the church at this point had been driven out of their homes up to four times in the previous years. On August 15th of 1857, Brigham Young sent Robert C. Burton and a small reconnaissance group from Salt Lake City to observe the military regiments en route to Utah and to protect the immigrants that were still crossing the plains to Utah. Two of Burton's men went into the military camps posing as travelers headed to California. What they reported back to Brigham Young and the leadership, based on the conversations they heard, created a bit of hysteria in the territory. They reported that the enlisted military boasted that they were going to hang the Utah leaders and abuse the members. With that in mind, Brigham Young published the following proclamation to the church about the impending invasion, quote, We are invaded by a hostile force, who are evidently assailing us to accomplish our overthrow and destruction. The government has not condescended to cause an investigating committee or other persons to be sent to inquire into and ascertain the truth as is customary in such cases. The issue, which has thus been forced upon us, compels us to resort to the great first law of self-preservation and stand in our own defense and right, guaranteed unto us by the genius of the institutions of our country, and on which the government is based. Our duties to ourselves and family requires us to not tamely submit to be driven and slain without an attempt to preserve ourselves our duty to our country, our holy religion, our God and liberty, which requires that we shall not quietly stand still. End quote. Brigham Young was ordering the people to not quietly stand by. Not again. They were to form up and face the U.S. military. Brigham Young's proclamation declared three important things. First, to forbid all armed forces from coming into the Utah Territory on whatever pretense. Second, to hold all Utah forces in readiness to repel any invasion, and third, to declare martial law in the Utah Territory. Now, let's pause the story here for just a few minutes. Before diving into how Brigham Young planned on doing these things, let's discuss how we got here. These issues could probably be the object of their own podcast, but let's just recap a couple of points. From President Buchanan's point of view, Utah was an open rebellion. First was the matter of Brigham Young running the territory as a theocracy. When Brigham Young was placed as the territorial governor, that was a highly disputed appointment that President Fillmore made to appease the Utah people. To offset that, President Fillmore placed a number of non-Mormon federal judges in Utah in 1850. Over the next seven years, all of the federal appointees quit and left the territory heading back to Washington, D.C., all reported that Brigham Young was circumventing their authority, and some even claimed they felt their lives were on the line. Turns out that Brigham Young was running the territory in much the same way that Joseph Smith ran Nauvoo, in that all church affairs were to be tried with local courts and not within the federal courts. The federal officials became extremely outspoken about Brigham Young and criticized how he was running the state and the morale of the people. A particular grievance by Judge William Drummond claimed that they needed to recoup jurisdiction from Utah's probate courts 
And when they tried, Mormon lawyers stormed into their courts, stole their records, and burned them out back. All of this caused federal appointees to abandon their posts and leave the territory. Now, the second issue that President Buchanan was facing was how Brigham Young was running Utah. Buchanan had heard reports that Young would not allow federal surveyors into Utah to survey the land. That Brigham Young wouldn't allow many people to cross through the territory to California, and that Brigham Young was even establishing relationships with Western states' Indians to form an alliance where the Mormons and Indians would stand against the federal government. And lastly was the matter of polygamy. The federally appointed judges spoke out against polygamy, as everyone else did in Washington, D.C. One pain to the church at this time was that Stephen A. Douglas, a man we've covered a few times in this podcast that had helped the church with its territorial claims and that had recommended they settle in Utah in the first place to avoid civil war in Illinois after Joseph Smith was killed, had become a major critic of the church. Some say this is because he was attempting to appease Illinois voters who had a poor view of the church. Douglas denounced the Mormons and even went as far as saying, quote, it's become the duty of Congress to apply the knife and cut out this loathsome, disgusting ulcer, end quote. Strong words. Reports were also told in D.C. about the young women in the Mormon handcart companies that arrived in Utah, the fathers and brothers having died in the march, and the young girls left unprotected. According to these stories, these defenseless young girls were then swept up into polygamous marriages with old men. So, from a high level, those were the major claims against Brigham Young and the church that made President Buchanan feel justified to send the military to Utah. It also was going to win him some immediate clout in Washington, D.C. The church, unsurprised by these criticisms, felt there was plenty of room for debate. First off, regarding the federal appointees, the church could have and probably should have approached this differently. They weren't in a way undermining the federal appointees by going through probate courts. However, church leaders felt that the federal judges, William Drummond in particular, were anti-Mormon and immoral. Regarding Drummond, he openly criticized the church over polygamy, but was open about the fact that he had left his wife and children back east and was living openly with the prostitute. This really rubbed the church leaders wrong. Secondly, regarding how Brigham Young was running the state, The church had made it public at this time that they felt the American Indians were some of the descendants of the House of Israel. I cover this in episode 9 if you missed it. As such, missionaries had been sent to most of the Western tribes to preach and baptize among the Indian nations. Also, Brigham Young didn't trust the federal government, so yes, he did refuse some land surveyors from entering the territory. Can't imagine why he felt that way, as the army is marching on them. And lastly, regarding polygamy. I covered the emergence of polygamy in episode 32, so if you want to know the details on its roots within the church, I'd recommend going back and giving that episode a listen. The church, however, didn't publicly speak about polygamy until August of 1852. There, at a general conference in Salt Lake City, Elder Orson Pratt preached about polygamy for the first time from the pulpit, while Brigham Young then read Joseph Smith's 1843 revelation now found in section 132. The church hoped that by speaking publicly about polygamy, even if others didn't like it, that they'd let it go among consenting adults in Utah. Choosing Orson Pratt to teach it at conference was an interesting move by the church, 
as when Orson first heard about polygamy, he left the church. About a decade later, he had made peace with it, and the church was now having him teach it at conference. Pratt stated in his conference address, which was probably as much to the people in D.C. as to the members, quote, Polygamy is not, as many have supposed, a doctrine embraced by us to gratify the carnal lusts and feelings of man. That is not the object of the doctrine. Pratt presented the reasons why he felt that Mormons were commanded by God to practice polygamy. The foremost reason, he said, was that marriage is a central institution in the plan of God. What is the object of that union, Pratt asked? It is clearly expressed, for, says the Lord, unto the male and the female, I command you to multiply and replenish the earth. So, according to Pratt, polygamy was required in order for them to fulfill the promises made to Abraham, as having seed as numberless as the stars. Now, I think it's an interesting point here that not everyone in Utah was fully aware of polygamy in 1852. Not all the members were practicing it, and many just flat out said no. Records show that at this time, less than one-fourth of the men in the church practiced some form of polygamy. So, it wasn't as widespread as many in D.C. believed. But there were instances where young girls entered into polygamous marriages with older men. There is no way to dress that up, regardless of the norms of the day, This really left a sour taste in the mouth of federal officials. So with that backdrop, the church knew they were at odds in a number of ways with the government, but so were many other states on topics of women's rights, slavery, and Indian wars. Kansas had a mini-civil war already taking place, and Minnesota was about to plunge into the bloody Dakota War. So the church leaders never dreamed that President Buchanan would muster one-third of the army and have them march on Utah. This had never happened in the history of the United States. Can we imagine Trump just up and calling out the military to surround and put down Texas without a warning? I guess Trump isn't the best example here. Now, we should point out that regardless of how pure Buchanan's perceived motives may have been, he did make a major blunder. No investigative group had been sent to Utah to look into these accusations to determine if Utah was in full-scale rebellion. No letters had been sent looking for answers, The army just suddenly was on the border. Accompanying the military was Alfred Cumming from Georgia. President Buchanan had appointed him as the new territorial governor to take Brigham Young's place. Now, we should also point out, defending Buchanan here, that this appointment isn't quite as scandalous as I've seen it made out in history books. Brigham Young's appointed term as territorial governor had expired in 1854. He was now serving as the intern basis But still, to just show up with the army like this with no notification reminded the church of the Missouri and Illinois periods, and it had to send a chill down the church's back. What would the army do when it arrived? Well, like I said, the church didn't intend to just be a punching bag here. The army doesn't know it, but these aren't the same leaders that took it on the chin in Missouri. Many of the Utah leaders were veterans of the Mexico War, and though they didn't see active combat, they were trained and more than prepared for the high desert conditions. So let's quickly recount events that unfolded in this conflict. In September of 1857, Brigham Young declared martial law across the territory. All members weren't to allow anyone to enter and to stand at arms at all points of entry to Utah. Brigham Young also mustered up the Nauvoo Legion. The Legion, which, if you'll recall, started originally in Illinois, consisted of just under 7,000 men but only two-thirds of those had firearms. 
Kind of a scary discovery for that other one-third. Next, also in September of 1857, Captain Stuart Van Vliet arrived in Salt Lake City ahead of the military. Van Vliet's role was to petition Salt Lake City for supplies for the military, which is almost laughable at this point, and to assess Utah's strength. Van Vliet was received well by Brigham Young, and after just a few days of chatting with the leaders, he became convinced that the Mormons were not in rebellion against the United States. On top of that, after surveying the Nauvoo Legion, their dug-in defenses, and their commitment to operating open guerrilla warfare against the army, Van Vliet wasn't convinced the U.S. Army could win. Captain Van Vliet immediately wrote to President Buchanan and sped off to the army to stop this thing. But his petitions fell on deaf ears. The army was committed. Now, quick side note here. If you travel through Echo Canyon, Utah today, you can still see the remnants of the Nauvoo Legion's fortifications on top of the canyon walls. So with the Nauvoo Legion organized and flying under the flag of the Nauvoo Legion once again, they began drilling and elected captains with 20 to 40 men. The head of the Legion ordered these companies to go out on all the borders of the territory with the task of delaying the military through the winter, while Brigham Young and the leadership looked to contact their friends in Washington, D.C. to find a peaceful resolution. So the winter campaign of the Nauvoo Legion against the U.S. military began. Now, we should first note, the plan of the Legion wasn't to kill any soldiers. Brigham Young knew they were outgunned, so he hoped to slow down the military while looking for a peaceful resolution. The first thing the Legion did was burn all the prairies and grass along the route of Wyoming. They did this to make it harder for the military to find grazing areas along the route for their horses and cattle. This would also force the Teamsters off the wagon trail and away from the body of the military. The militia also wanted to wear out the military, so they tied tin cans and pots to the back of their horses and late in the night would proceed to ride around the military camps. This tactic kept the men from sleeping as they had to stand at the ready, and even worse, it often frightened their horses into stampeding and running. This worked really well on snowy, windy nights when visibility was poor. One U.S. soldier was said to have, quote, died of fright, end quote, when he had a heart attack as he woke to the sound of these scary Mormon mountain men riding around their camp in the cold snow, but not within reach. The next thing the Nauvoo Legion men did was send circulars into the military camps encouraging the soldiers to desert. All who would do so would be given $50, employment, and safe passage to California. Utah newspapers in 1857 claimed that over 400 soldiers accepted this offer to desert. Although this number is probably exaggerated, 400 desertions and just under 3,000 troops does follow the typical 12-20% to 20 desertion numbers common in the military in this period. But by far, the single most damaging and controversial operation by the Legion in this campaign was the burning of three entire army wagon trains carrying over 500,000 pounds of government supplies. These raids on the wagon trains were led by Captain Lot Smith. Like we mentioned earlier, these aren't really the same church members that we saw pushed out of Missouri and Nauvoo. Lot Smith was a young boy during those trials, and at the age of 16, he stood on his tiptoes so that he could enlist with the Nauvoo Legion. There he was drilled and trained in military tactics, and after serving honorably through California, he worked at Sutter Mill where he made a fortune in gold and returned to Utah to live with the church members there. 
Smith was smart and daring, and when the church leaders told him to turn the freight trains strung out through the immigrant road back east around or destroy them, Lot took this task very seriously. When Lot and his men warned the freight trains to leave, they were ignored by the wagon masters. So on October 4th of 1857, with no more than 24 men, Lot Smith intercepted the first wagon train they came upon after midnight. Lot and his men rode up hard with their guns out and disarmed the Teamsters, numbering almost a hundred. The Teamsters were then stripped of their weapons and sent on their way by foot. As Lot Smith and his men were preparing the wagons to be set on fire, an army express rider rode up, not recognizing the Legion men, and told them that they should be about their wits as Mormons were in the field. Didn't Lot Smith know that? Early that morning, Lot Smith and his men burned 52 wagons of supplies. When one of the wagon masters saw Lot Smith setting fire to the supply train, he said, quote, For God's sake, don't burn the trains. End quote. To which Lot Smith replied, quote, It was for God's sake that I was burning them. End quote. The next day at noon, Lot Smith and his men came upon another supply train. Without the element of a surprise attack at his disposal, Lot Smith ordered his men to ride past the supply train in a long line, then enter a gully where they couldn't be seen, double back at full sprint, and hop back into the Legion line and continue to ride past. Just a big circle. This caused the wagon masters to think that Lot's forces were far bigger than they were. Lot Smith and his men then rode up upon the next wagon train, disarmed them, and burned all of their wagons but two, leaving them with enough food so they wouldn't starve. All told, Lot Smith and his team burned 74 wagons, containing enough supplies to support the army for three months. They also captured 1,400 of the 2,000 cattle accompanying the military wagons. Now, we should note that many of the Nauvoo Legion men were survivors of the tough conditions they experienced settling the Utah Territory. They weren't comfortable stealing, but Lot Smith's men took the cattle and warm coats before burning everything else. Now, one good story was that of a young Nauvoo Legion man that stole some pistols from one of the Army's soldiers during the last raid. Feeling bad about this, when the conflict ends in 1858, he would seek out the soldier and return those stolen pistols. So, obviously, the military was enraged by Lot Smith's actions. They were in an extremely perilous position, not knowing if they had enough rations to make it through the winter, they put a $1,000 reward on the head of Lot Smith. These wagon train burnings will be the one act of war after this conflict ends that the church can't deny. For our purposes, we should note that Lot Smith and his men continued their raids, but the military was now on high alert. They stopped attacking wagon trains, and with the help of Captain Porter Rockwell and his men, stole and drove off over 700 cattle into the Salt Lake Valley. At this point, the military began to lay traps for the Legion men, catching them by surprise a few times and firing on them. Though none of Lot Smith's men died, one did take a bullet through his hat. As November rolled in, the U.S. military was way behind schedule due to the nightly raids of the Nauvoo Legion. Though they attempted to fight back, the Nauvoo Legion men were better horse riders and kept getting away. Now Mother Nature did her part. The snowstorms came next. With reports that the mountains now had two to five feet of snow on them, they made for Forts Bridger and Supply in eastern Utah, which is now Wyoming. It would take the army 
15 days to push 35 miles through blizzards and sub-zero temperatures. Hundreds of their cattle would die along the way. Without the cattle, many of the soldiers had to pull the wagons by hand, and when they arrived at the forts, the Nauvoo Legion had burned them to the ground, along with all the grass plains the cattle were to graze on. General Albert Sidney Johnson and an enraged, embarrassed, and frozen military spent a cold and windy winter huddled in tents on the high desert pass as the Legion left a few men to watch them while the rest went home to Utah. They had delayed the army. Now, just as an interesting side note, General Johnston will soon leave his post with the U.S. military. He will head for the southern states, join up with the Confederate Army, retain the rank of general, and be the highest-ranking military officer to die in combat at the Battle of Shiloh. Now back to our story. At this point, Eastern congressmen and press started to have second thoughts about this whole campaign. Did they just open Pandora's box by attacking Utah and not being able to put down a religious group quickly? Not only had the Mormons not been actively fighting anyone before this, what message would this send to other rebellious states? Also, with the southern states threatening war, could they really justify having the army out in the Utah Territory fighting a religious group? So on Christmas Day of 1857, President Buchanan met with Thomas Kane and some church leaders that had attempted to negotiate the Utah Territory. Buchanan, tired of this whole thing already, told Kane that if he could negotiate peace, he'd support it. So again, we have Kane here, the same non-Mormon sympathizer that helped the church negotiate lands for winter quarters and helped them prepare their arguments for state rights, was now to settle the Utah War. Kane, at his own expense, not wanting to cross the frozen winter deserts, chose instead to immediately sail south to Panama, cross the strait, and sail up to San Francisco and cross by land to Utah. That trip took three months, and he arrived in Salt Lake City in March of 1858. Kane was received by Brigham Young and the church leaders. Kane then convinced Brigham Young to let him go and meet with Governor Cumming, the newly appointed governor, and bring him back to Utah. Brigham Young agreed, and Kane was off through Echo Canyon to meet with the military and Governor Cumming. So after a bit of debating... Kane actually convinced Cumming to accompany him back to Salt Lake City to meet with Brigham Young. This all took place in April of 1858. Now we should note that the Nauvoo Legion pulled another fast one here. Cumming traveled by night, and the Legion lit torches and bonfires all down the canyon path. As Kane traveled, the Legion lined the road. After his wagon passed a group, they would hop on their horses, sprint ahead, and line up again. This gave Cumming the impression that the church had a significant force ready for battle in the canyon and opened him up a bit more for negotiation. Upon arriving in Salt Lake City, Cumming found that Brigham Young was quite agreeable and was quickly convinced that the church was not in open rebellion. Brigham Young was happily willing to allow Cumming to step right into his role as governor of the territory. However, there was the small issue of the military. General Johnston wanted to march them into Salt Lake City and was willing to pardon the church of all their rebellious acts, I did quotations there, if they'd swear allegiance to the United States and allow the military to occupy part of the state. After a lot of back and forth, the church agreed. However, the military was not to build a fort anywhere within 40 miles of Salt Lake or Provo to the south. So the military 
marched into Salt Lake City down southwest where they'd build a fort in Cedar Valley just outside what is now Eagle Mountain. They named the camp Camp Floyd, named after the Secretary of War, who would also leave the Union and join up with the Confederates in the coming years. The Utah War was over, and we finally arrived at our object. Now, let's touch on just a couple more interesting notes that took place here. When the military marched through the Salt Lake Valley in June of 1858, Brigham Young still didn't trust that the military wouldn't harass the members of the church. So after peace was settled in April, he ordered all the church members to leave the valley and head to the southern part of the state. This was quite the endeavor and included over 30,000 people. A few leaders stayed behind in Salt Lake and filled the homes with hay. Had the military any thoughts of touching their properties, the leaders were to set everything on fire and recommence the war fighting from the south. Also, the church had now laid foundations for a new temple in Salt Lake City. They quickly covered the foundations with earth and planted grain over the top of the foundations so they couldn't be found by the military. On July 1st, after the army had passed through peaceably and was building Camp Floyd, Brigham Young authorized the members to return to their homes. Camp Floyd would grow to become the largest military base in the United States pre-Civil War. The military still had a bit of friction with the local church members as they had an anti-Mormon newspaper and a number of brothels, but overall, things remained peaceful for the remainder of those years. Governor Cumming would even work well with Brigham Young and the church leaders, becoming a friend to the church and serving them fairly during his term. Now, before digging more into the object, we should note that at the conclusion of the Utah War, or what many Eastern papers would now call Buchanan's Blunder, a line ran in the New York Herald about the near miss of a conflict. The line, referring to the battles, read, quote, Killed none, wounded none, fooled everybody, end quote. Yes, nobody died in the engagements between the Legion and the military, but people did die. In September of 1857, just after Brigham Young declared martial law and shut down all traffic through the territory, a wagon train entered the southeastern part looking to pass through to Nevada. As the territory was under martial law and the people were on high alert, nobody was willing to sell supplies and trade with the Fancher Party. This caused angry feelings between the Fancher Party and the members in southern Utah, as the Fancher Party was noted to pilfer from local farmers en route. Things got hot when the members in southern Utah learned that most of the Fancher Party was from Arkansas. Just weeks prior to this, Parley P. Pratt, a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, was murdered in Arkansas by an estranged ex-husband of one of his polygamous wives. According to the members in Utah, this was brought up. But the tipping point was that the rest of the Fancher Party members were from Missouri, and some even boasted, according to the members' accounts, that they'd been involved in the murder of Joseph Smith and with the Hans Mill Massacre. With war on the horizon and the members on high alert, these were absolutely the wrong things to say at this time. So John D. Lee, a member of the church and the appointed Indian agent in the territory, began debating among the members that the Fancher Party would divulge details about the military strengths and commit other crimes against them when they left the territory. So he and a few other members concocted an evil plan. They wanted to destroy the Fancher Party. According to reports, a letter was sent to Brigham Young to gauge his thoughts, but John D. Lee decided to act before a response could arrive. 
So on September 11th of 1857, John D. Lee and other local church leaders in the South organized an attack with the aid of the Paiute Indians on the Fanshawe Party. Through ruthlessness and outright treachery, they killed around 120 men, women, and children, only sparing 18 or so young children that were too young to recognize them. John D. Lee then went to Salt Lake City and blamed the attack on the Paiute Indians. With the Utah War breaking out and all of that entailed, sadly, this tragic event was just swept under the rug. In September of 2007, President Henry B. Eyring, speaking for the church, would formally acknowledge that the members of the church had organized and carried out this attack. He apologized to the descendants of the Fancher Party and the Paiute Indian Nation. Now, John D. Lee would be put on trial for what he did in 1877, convicted and taken to the place where the massacre happened and put to death. So people did die during the struggle, even if they weren't direct combatants fighting with the U.S. military. With that somber note, back to 1858. Upon building Camp Floyd, the first thing the military did was put up a flagpole. They wanted Brigham Young and the leaders to know Utah was an American territory. The Camp Floyd flagpost stood over the camp for the next three years. In 1861, the southern states announced their intent to secede from the Union. Camp Floyd was to be immediately abandoned, as all soldiers were called home to fight. As Colonel Cook was leaving Utah, he took down the flagpole of Camp Floyd, and they presented it to Brigham Young on July 27th of 1861. Brigham Young had the flagpole placed on the east side of the temple, and after some debate, decided to fly the United States flag from it instead of the flag of the Mormon battalion. Over time, the flagpole was brought down and disappeared from history. Now, what did the flagpole mean to the members of the church? Although the military marched on Salt Lake City, to the members, the Lord had watched over them. They saw this as a miracle. The flagpole was evidence that the church could stand toe-to-toe with the military and come away on their own terms. But most importantly, this engagement officially ended the church's attempt at a theodemocracy, meaning both the civil and ecclesiastical government was under the prophet's leadership. It didn't work in Nauvoo, and it wasn't working in Salt Lake City. Going forward, though the church was to carry a big bat in political negotiations in Utah, they officially separated the church from the state. Now, where can you see the flagpole today? The deserted Camp Floyd is now a state park. On November 10th of 2018, so just a few months ago, a flagpole was built after the original specifications and rededicated at the Camp Floyd Park. You can see it now as it holds a 28-foot by 40-foot American flag. Now, The Utah War would probably be considered a major historical event if it wasn't rightly overlooked by the Civil War. In 1861, with the soldiers heading back east to fight, Brigham Young again began to call missionaries to serve and settle new colonies, and the church once again could focus on growth. So, that's finally it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode of History of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and 50 Objects, episode 43, Camp Floyd's flagpole. As always, if you have questions or comments, you can reach out to me directly at joehomc at gmail.com. And as always, the broken record. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to rate and comment on iTunes. It helps spread the word. Thanks again for listening.